Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Brownstein Policy Director Kate McCandless is joined by Brownstein Advisors Drew Littman, Peter Goodlow, and Laura Johnson for a healthcare discussion on Trump's executive order, cost sharing reduction payments, the Alexander Murray Bill, the current political landscape for healthcare, and their predictions on healthcare issues going forward. Welcome to the Brownstein Podcast Series. We are here again today with our healthcare group, uh, including Laura Johnson, policy advisor, well versed in issues on healthcare, early and secondary education and labor. Laura works directly with our clients to navigate all of these complex issues on Capitol Hill, track legislative issues, and craft strategies for federal healthcare programs and policies. Pete Goodlow of Council brings 30 years of experience in life sciences and public health, including 23 years of developing policy and legislation as an attorney for the U.S. House of Representatives. Pete's knowledge of health care policy stems from his time in the Office of Legislative Council on the Energy and Commerce Committee. In these roles, he has been deeply involved in developing policy and legislation related to the Food and Drug Administration, the National Institutes of Health, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Drug Enforcement Administration, and other health-related agencies. Drew Littman, Policy Director, previously served as Al Franken's Chief of Staff, where he led a staff of more than 30 and spearheaded all legislative policy and press initiatives. Before that, he served in the office of Senator Barbara Boxer, four of those years as her policy director. Immediately before joining Brownstein this year, Drew served as senior counselor to Health and Human Services Secretary Sylvia Matthews Burwell. And I'm Kate McCandless, policy director here at Brownstein. I lead our healthcare government affairs policy group, and I represent clients across the healthcare spectrum, including physician organizations, hospitals, consumer organizations, healthcare information technology companies, pharmaceutical biotech companies, and others with regard to all federal healthcare programs and policies. So here we are again discussing the never ending topic of healthcare. So the last time that we were all here together, I believe we were discussing the prospects of yet another repeal and replace effort, the Graham-Cassidy legislation, that uh, ultimately didn't even receive a vote on the Senate floor. Uh, I believe, Pete, you're the one that that called uh, the politics on that, that um, there were far too many Republicans that uh, opposed the original BCRA upon which the uh, the the Graham-Cassidy legislation was essentially built. And so, um, you know, getting past the 43 or so Republicans that initially voted for that was going to be difficult. And in fact, it proved uh, not only difficult, but fatal. And so I think that for a, a short moment, many of us thought that we could take a break from health care. Uh, that did not happen. In fact, the administration turned right around and said that they were going to use uh, the executive position uh, and issued an executive order on association health plans, essentially directing the uh, Department of Labor and, and HHS to issue regulations or change regulations and interpretations of regulations around uh, association health plans and also short-term uh, insurance plans, expanding the role of short-term insurance. And then, not even 24 hours later, they also made the announcement that they were not going to pay the cost-sharing reduction subsidies that were being paid to the insurance companies to make them whole after uh, 
after the reduced premiums and, and excuse me, out-of-pocket costs uh, that they are required to provide. And so we had a very tumultuous uh, 24 or so hours in healthcare, and I think many of us are still working to understand exactly what the implications of the decisions are going to be. And so I think that's probably where we should start, uh, the executive order on association health plans uh, and short-term health insurance. Pete, give us a sense of what this executive order really does and why it's valuable uh, to the administration. When this hit the media, and the media's initial take is, okay, this is dramatically, this is dramatically changing health care. And I had people write me, you know, is this even legal? So what's the background? What's going on? Well, <coughs> uh, you know, many, many people have uh, health care through um, uh, large companies or through the government, and, and their policies are in the large group market. And interestingly, uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, essential health benefits, the, the range of, uh, of services and items that, that, that must be provided, actually only apply in the, uh, the, the small group market and the individual market. They, people have heard things like age 26, pre-existing conditions. That applies to everyone, uh, all plans, including large group plans. But essential health benefits are only as I said, for the small group market and the individual market. So what the, what the executive order does, and it's important to understand that uh, in and of itself, it does not change the legal landscape. It directs uh, federal agencies to take actions. And once those agencies take actions, then the legal landscape will be modified. So the executive order gives a command to the uh, Department of Labor uh, to do something on association health plans. And essentially, this is how it works. Association health plan is where a, a group of small employers band together uh, and uh, with their combined strength, they're, they're able to purchase a plan in the large group market. And as I've said, if you're in the large group market, you're not a, uh, subject to the essential health benefits. And Republicans have said having to provide all those uh, benefits is what drives up costs. We, we should have more flexibility than that. So the, the, so the, the legal question is, Okay, the small employers have banded together to purchase a large group plan. So are they now a large group plan and not subject to the essential health benefits requirement? Or do they retain their character as small group plans and therefore are subject to the essential health benefits requirement? And we don't know the answer to that yet. But I think, as you mentioned, it's important to note that the agency primarily involved in this is the Department of Labor. And subsequently, it appears as though they are making uh, changes to the ERISA laws and regulations, and not necessarily to the ACA, which would be under the jurisdiction of, of HHS. Well, well, that's a very important point. The um, ERISA, Employee Retirement Income Security Act in 1974, uh, regulates group health plans. And an important issue in ERISA is, uh, is preemption and how much uh, authority do the states have relative to the federal government. But it's the uh, Department of Health and Human Services that regulates health insurers. And the, the, the whole concept of a large group plan is on the HHS side, not on the Department of Labor side. So how is this going to work out? So there are definitely uh, some issues that will be coming up. Well, and this, uh, this concept has long been championed by Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky and also uh, gives the, the president uh, the opportunity to say that he's following through on one of his campaign promises, which was to allow insurers to sell uh, insurance plans across state lines. So I think that's a, a great point. And Drew, I would ask you from a 
sort of political perspective, this is very complicated. Um, how do you think that the president is going to be able to sort of take credit for either fulfilling this campaign promise? And is that even enough uh, if, if it doesn't actually do anything to impact people's premiums? I think in the long run, it, it has no political valence. I think to the general public, this is way too esoteric. Even if they're buying a policy from an insurer who's now selling across state lines where they couldn't before, who's ever going to know that, right? Um, it, it, it doesn't have any big ripple effect, I think, on other insurers and, and other insurers' policies. I think also important to note, to, to separate things out a bit, uh, when we talk about premium increases, we're talking about 10 million people buying insurance on the exchanges. But looking at the larger insurance markets, 155 million people get their insurance through their employers. Another 100 million get their health insurance either through Medicare or Medicaid. For the most part, those huge populations are not directly affected by these changes. So I think if you're looking at politics, either for Republicans who are running again in 2018 or the president possibly running for re-election in 2020, it's hard to imagine that any of this has an impact. Maybe for a large donor base that just wants to see some change. Maybe for um, Republican think tanks, intellectuals, uh, conservative media, it has a little bit of meaning. And that gets amplified. But it's hard to imagine that it's ever going to affect anyone's voting decision. I think what will also be interesting to watch is uh, in, in marketplaces where this catches on, uh, are there going to be fewer uh, traditional insurance options in the individual marketplace? In, in other words, are there going to be more insurers who are pulling out of some of these counties where a number of people are now being insured through association health plans? Um, I, speaking of the individual insurance market and uh, these uh, insurance plans, as I said, the president quickly followed up on his executive order announcement with the announcement that the administration would no longer be uh, paying the cost-sharing reduction subsidies uh, to the insurance companies. And this was something that we've discussed on the podcast here before, uh, the, the history of it and, and why this has become an issue. Um, you know, generally, the, the, the lawsuit had been ongoing and, and uh, the judgment had been stayed pending any uh, action legislatively uh, that might resolve this issue. And I think that, you know, the judicial branch uh, rightly has tried to stay out of this ongoing fight between uh, Congress and the Obama administration and then subsequently the Trump administration. But I think that the uh, the attorney general wrote a very concise uh, memo on why he felt that it was the appropriate time for uh, the administration to to cease these payments, whether you agree with the decision or not, he at least tried to lay it out um, in a way that that was uh, something that the general public could understand. But Pete, why don't we talk a little bit about the background of uh, of these CSR payments, what they're for? Uh, I know we've addressed this on the podcast before, but for people who are listening to us for the first time, um, you know, what, why are these payments significant? Well, there, there's several ways that the ACA uh, tries to uh, uh, help people afford their, their, their health care. The, the CSRs, or cost uh, subsidy uh, reductions, are meant to uh, help, help uh, patients with their co-pays. The, the ACA uh, expressly requires uh, that the insurers to reduce 
the co-pays, but then they received payments from the government that, that uh, reimbursed them for those reductions. Uh, and so the, that's where the CSRs come in play. But separately, uh, there are subsidies, you know, if, if you meet the eligibility requirements, there, there are subsidies for, uh, for premium. So on the one hand, we have the, the, the CSRs. On the other hand, we have the, the, the premiums, two ways people uh, receive financial assistance, but they're different mechanisms. And on the, the premium subsidies, they're actually in the form of a tax credit, correct? Correct. So generally, the administration uh, had been told uh, through, the, uh, through the courts, actually, that it was unlawful for them to make these payments because these are payments that would come from a discretionary appropriation source, and that particular uh, appropriation had not been made by Congress. And so Congress brought suit against the administration saying, you can't make these payments, these, these CSR payments, to the insurance companies because we, Congress, hold the power of the purse and we didn't appropriate money for those funds. And so ultimately, what we are seeing now is the Trump administration following through on what they threatened to do eight other times this year, which was not make these uh, these cost-sharing uh, subsidy reduction payments to the insurance companies. What, if any, significance is there, and I open this up to anyone, uh, that he chooses, that the administration has chosen to stop making these payments now after eight months of making these payments and within when when they made the announcement within two weeks of open enrollment starting for for plan year 2018 well the president is on a sabotage mission and i think you you stated the the legal issues but i don't think the president really is that concerned with the legal issues um, he's on a on a mission to reverse every possible Obama initiative that he can reverse or undermine. And here he sees another opportunity. This is a, a policy change that nobody asked for and nobody benefits from. In fact, the federal government will now wind up spending additional funds in the form of uh, premium credits because people will be paying higher premiums. So the net cost of eliminating the the C- CSRs in 2018 alone is something like $2.3 billion, and over a 10-year span, it stretches to over $30 billion um, just to slightly undermine the Affordable Care Act. It's hard to see any purpose to it other than that. But mechanically, uh, the the individuals that receive premium subsidies, it's true, they would receive a higher uh, tax credit because their premiums would go up. But really, the folks that are impacted here are not the people who are receiving these particular tax credits, right? That they're actually the people who don't qualify, who make just slightly more than uh, that threshold. Those premiums will rise because the insurance companies need to make up the loss somewhere. So they will broadly raise premiums. And we've heard, I think, from state officials that where they their insurers were filing uh, 2% or 5% increases in anticipation of the suspension of CSRs, they were filing 20% uh, premium increases to make sure that they were protected. So this is, this is one where everybody loses, uh, from what I can say. Consumers aren't really directly affected, but it, but it creates problems for the federal government. Well, and the the uncertainty over whether or not the administration would uh, keep paying these subsidy payments because they had been uh, going month to month um, essentially caused a lot of insurers to file two separate rates uh, for their 2018 plans, one rate for if the, the subsidies would continue and one rate uh, without. And as Drew said, the there were drastic uh, differences, uh, much higher uh, premium rates for uh, if the subsidies were not paid. 
I, I absolutely agree. I heard a quote recently that uh, insurers are, are built to understand and plan for risk. What they can't understand and plan for is uncertainty. Right. And I think that that's very true. But Drew, I, I would actually push back on on one thing that you said, and that is that no one really wins here. I do think that from a legal perspective, uh, the, the House of Representatives wins here um, and the Congress wins here because at the very heart of this is a fight over the appropriation of funds and the and the balance between the executive branch and and the Congress and so there is a bit of uh, of gamesmanship here where the administration is almost calling the bluff of the Congress because it isn't as if these CSR payments will just disappear. I mean, these payments could be made beginning tomorrow and retroactively back to the time when they haven't been paid if if something uh, changes in the Congress. Laura, what is uh, going on right now on the congressional front, on the legislative front, to sort of make these payments and and appropriately appropriate the funds for cost-sharing reductions? Well, so before uh, everyone became consumed by Graham Cassidy, there were bipartisan conversations on the, the Senate Health Committee between uh, Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray to uh, to figure out how to provide short-term stabilization for the individual insurance marketplace. Um, and so once uh, once Graham Cassidy uh, went down in flames, uh, the the Senate Health Committee released text last week that would actually provide for a uh, a two-year appropriation for the cost sharing reduction payments, as well as some uh, state flexibility for the uh, Section 1332 waivers. Um, that uh, that bill has uh, been introduced. Uh, it has the support of the, the entire Senate Democratic Caucus, as well as uh, 12 Republicans. So that, that means an important number, which is 60 votes, which is enough to, to avoid the, uh, the budget reconciliation rules. And so do we think that Alexander Murray is the way forward. Is it the only way to make these CSR payments right now? Uh, I think it's it's one of the only uh, bipartisan ways that that could be going forward. Uh, additionally, uh, Senator Hatch, the the chairman of the the Finance Committee and and uh, Ways and Means uh, Chairman uh, Brady, released uh, a, a Republican plan to counter this bipartisan plan earlier this week that would fund the cost sharing redu- reduction subsidies, but uh, tie them to uh, some abortion provisions, which is essentially would be a poison pill for Democrats. So, um, you know, I think that that was a, a little bit of a, a jurisdictional. Fight between uh, the Lamar Alexander and, and Orrin Hatch, um, but I don't see that uh, that plan really having any viability. Well, between the elders of the Senate fighting and the Senate fighting with the House and the House fighting with the President, it feels like we're back with our founding fathers. Um, a little bit of a duel. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a duel. Yeah, that may be giving them too much credit. Uh, um, but are we expecting this to move? independently, uh, or is this an exercise that gets wrapped up in all of the things that we anticipate coming in at the end of the year? Well, the timing for Alexander and Murray may be very good because um, the current government funding bill expires on December 7th. So there is going to be some kind of omnibus appropriations bill. And if you're going to pass something like this, it's highly unlikely that 
Leader McConnell would bring it to the floor as a freestanding bill. If you're going to pass it, you're going to have to wrap it up in something that so many people are already prepared to vote for that it doesn't get pulled out. No one threatens to, to filibuster the omnibus appropriations bill. And, and behind that, you have uh, the prospect of tax reform also. So you might have one or two bites at the apple, but this certainly is a good time to introduce a bill like this because there are vehicles that you could potentially attach it to. So a couple of points about Alexander Murray. First of all, uh, there has been a good bit of uh, discussion about whether it will be tacked on uh, in in the end-of-session spending bill. But interestingly, uh, media reports are that Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, has told conservative groups he's not going to do that. So where does that that leave us? And it's interesting, um, uh, the, the relation, there's actually a little bit of a relationship between the uh, Alexander Murray and, and the idea of uh, the association uh, health plans. You know, the, the, the key point about the association health plans was we're getting around the essential health benefits. But the Alexander Murray, which is a bipartisan bill, as, we, as we've said, they create what uh, would be called a copper plan. And that's actually uh, uh, CBO is characterizing as a catastrophic plan. And so uh, in some ways, uh, how different is uh, Alexander Murray from the association health plan approach in terms of trying to uh, uh, get around essential uh, health benefits? Uh, And there's been a lot of focus, you know, in all the bills about waivers so that the states can uh, sort of design their own plans to it, that Alexander Murray... Uh, change would change the current requirement that the state has to enact something first before they can even submit a waiver. So Alexander Murray changes that. So there's really a, seemingly a lot to like in this for Republicans. Well, and Pete, you mentioned CBO. Uh, CBO announced yesterday that uh, the Alexander Murray legislation would actually reduce the federal deficit. Does that give it a better chance of perhaps being a pay-for for some other uh, legislative initiative by the end of the year? Or do you think this just ultimately gets lumped in and nobody really cares about the deficit anymore? Congress is always desperate for pay-fors. And once something <laughs> has been blessed by CBO as a pay-for, its whole political life can change. And so we'll have to see. You know, a pay-for comes up uh, when you, you know, when you need an Offset often on the on the mandatory spending side, but it can it can matter uh, otherwise as as well. And of course, now w- one of the contexts we're discussing Alexander Murray in is is in the CSR context, and so well, you know is Congress going to do something? But the uh, the decision of, of the Trump administration to cut them off seemingly also puts the ball back in the uh, on, onto the court side because the. You know the the original suit. The the, the reason we the, the, the Trump administration has the authority to to cut them off is that the House of Republicans sued the uh, administration, and when Trump uh, when when the Trump administration came in, there was a decision to stay the lawsuit, and, and and the Trump administration has been deciding whether to defend it or not, and they keep having stays where the court they, they tell the court, well, we don't want to go forward right now. So something's got to happen in this lawsuit. And then there's a separate lawsuit out in California uh, where the state attorney generals have launched. 
And uh, the, the first thing they were doing in that lawsuit in the, in the California court was seeking a, a, a preliminary injunction to try to force the administration to, to resume the CSRs. And uh, that decision has just come down from that court denying the preliminary injunction. But that's just the preliminary matter. It will go forward. So this is still going to be playing out in the courts. So. Really quickly, Laura, you mentioned earlier uh, your uh, assessment of Graham Cassidy is that it went down in flames. But the president has said over and over again that we have the votes for Graham Cassidy. And he indicated at one point that perhaps it didn't come to the floor because there was a senator who was sick. And we all know that uh, Senator Cochran was absent for a period of time uh, from the Senate. But, you know, he continues to say, the president continues to say that we have the votes to repeal and replace and, and that, uh, you know, he, he initially said that about the, uh, the the BCRA and the Senate bill. He also then said it about Graham Cassidy. So we assume that he is having conversations with uh, Senate leadership and, and that he's counting these votes. But recently, he seems to have parted ways with uh, members of his own party. Uh, and, and there's been a lot of criticism of, of him by members who are, are choosing not to run uh, in 2018, Senator Corker from Tennessee and Senator Flake from Arizona. Drew, what do these departures by these senators or, or potentially others like McCain, the Maverick, uh, mean for the prospects of repeal and replace as we move forward? I think the president, uh, just to challenge one thing that, that you said, the president is pathologically unable to count votes. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't know. He doesn't care. He doesn't understand the rules. He's complained a lot about the filibuster stopping his legislation when none of his legislation has been filibustered. He, he can't get majorities. Um, I think that uh, Leader McConnell has a huge challenge on his hands. I think in the end, maybe he gets uh, Senator Corker's vote. Uh, I don't think Corker would vote against um, a health care bill to spite Trump. I think he'd rather help McConnell. Um, Flake becomes more of a wild card now. Um, I, I think maybe the biggest wild card is in Alabama because Luther Strange will be replaced by someone in December, either by a Democrat or by an incredibly conservative. A conservative is not even the word for, for uh, Roy Moore, I think. Oh, let's call him a wild card. You also have this issue with Senator Cochran is ill. Senator McCain is ill, undergoing treatment. Um, so you could have other changes, people unable to vote. I mean, God forbid, but, but potentially people unable to vote. Um, it gets harder, not easier, I think, in any scenario for Leader McConnell to get 51 votes. Whether the president realizes that or not, I can't tell. I think a lot of what we're getting is um, – is Trump's reality TV instincts, which are to keep everything in the air all the time, to keep people off balance all the time, to forecast things that might or might not happen, to set you up so that there's later a reversal. Anything that creates drama, anything that puts him at the center is, is the kind of thing he's going to pursue, regardless of likely policy outcomes. So it becomes very hard to game out what he's going to do, because what he's going to do is likely the reverse of whatever he did last. Good luck figuring out what comes next. And depending on the timing of trying to bring something up again uh, in terms of Republican health care bill, you're not talking 51 votes right now. The only, the only time 51 votes gets it is if we're operating under reconciliation, which doesn't allow filibusters. But all the health care legislation that's been debated uh, was, was under the fiscal year 
2017 reconciliation bill, and that's that expired at the end close of business on September 30th. So at the moment, if you were to try to bring Graham Cassidy up again, you know, even if you had 51 votes, it wouldn't matter right now because you'd need 60 votes to, enough to stop a filibuster. And interestingly enough, it looks like the 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 the, reconcil- the the budget resolution and the resulting reconciliation bill that will come out of that for 2018 doesn't seem to make room for for health care reform because the it's it's focuses on uh, the House Ways and Means Committee and the Senate Finance Committee, both of which have some jurisdiction, but you can't really do health care reform without involving House Energy and Commerce and and the Senate Help Committee. And so that only leaves, you know, if you're talking 51 votes, we had to get into next year and the budget resolution and a reconciliation bill for, for 2019 to even have a chance to get back to 51 votes on a health care bill. Well, and uh, from the, the Democrats' perspective, I think that they were very effective at uh, mobilizing the, the grassroots resistance networks to uh, to push back against some of the the Republican repeal and replace proposals, and and more recently you've seen some uh, intro- bill introductions in the Senate, sort of more, more marker political bills from Senator Sanders, um, who introduced his uh, Medicare for All with 18 Democratic co-sponsors. Um, no uh, no Senate Democrats from red states, though. Uh, you also had a, a bill introduced this week by Senator Schatz that would uh, essentially allow individuals to buy into Medicaid. Um, and then Senator Kane and Senator Bennett also introduced um, a sort of uh, Medicare uh, buy-in act that would build on, um, you know, that would uh, kind of phase in this uh, ability to, to buy into Medicare plans, focusing on uh, areas where there are a shortage of options for, for consumers. And by uh, 2020, the, this uh, public plan uh, would be available to, to all individuals in the country. Well, and it sounds like that we are going to have uh, no shortage of topics and issues to debate in healthcare. Um, why don't we do one last round of uh, what? T- tell me something I don't know, um, you know, about healthcare and what we should be expecting in the next eighteen months. Well, let me offer a prediction, building on what Laura just said. I think that the legacy of the repeal and replace effort will not be the repeal of Obamacare. It will be the creation of single-payer health care system because there's, there's so much ill will and there's been uh, such a breach of regular order that it will be hugely tempting for the Democrats to just take a 51-senator margin. They'd have to have the White House and House, of course. But the next time that those stars align to, pass, to draft a bill in secret, as the Republicans did, and pass it with 51 votes. I think the difference is between the way the Democrats will proceed and the way the Republicans proceeded is that even if the Democrats do it in secret, they will allow some female senators to participate. <laughs> I can't drop the mic because it's on the stand. <laughs> well, that's a bold prediction. Single-payer health care from Drew. Anyone else? Thoughts? Next 18 months? Changes in Senate makeup? I think Dean Heller uh, could be the next Republican senator to decide not to run for re-election. He is the most vulnerable. And remember, he voted against repeal and replace initially 
and then was converted, persuaded basically with the promise of campaign help to vote for it. It's possible if he decides not to run for re-election, he finds himself free to vote to oppose it again, making it still harder to get 51 votes down the road, even when there's a fiscal 19 uh, budget resolution and reconciliation instructions. Well, we already know that the tax bill is, is, is critical on the Republican agenda, so maybe it's worth uh, uh, just a moment to talk about the relationship between the tax bill and, and health care. You know, as we've discussed, for, except maybe with respect to doing something about the, the CSRs, the, you know, the, the, the attention has shifted to tax. And so if, what is the outcome if they're not successful with the tax bill? They would have nowhere else to go but back to desperately to, to trying to do something about Obamacare because with, if they don't have a, a tax bill enacted and they don't have something that they can call repeal and replace enacted, what happens to them a year from now uh, in the elections? Well, and to Pete's point, if the if the tax bill fails, I think that it becomes all the more likely that Democrats control either the House or Senate, and they're in the room where it happens. Well, I think that uh, we will certainly be having this conversation moving forward. Uh, there will be no shortage of health care issues. Uh, the administration has indicated that it is very interested in dealing with the scourge of the opioid addiction crisis in this country. And its commitment to that issue uh, began on early in the administration. You've seen a lot of activity. Uh, we will see additional activity coming this week. Um, they will declare the opioid addiction crisis a public health emergency, which will free up some uh, some funding. But what I think, uh, my, my bold prediction, uh, so you can hold me to it, I think that we will hear from, these, from this administration a sensitivity to this issue that might delve deeply personally. And I think that this is going to be the hallmark of the administration, the way that they deal with opioids in mm. this country. That is a bold prediction. So we'll see. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you, Thank Kate. you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.